Well, I'm not sure uh, if you keep a calendar, but statistically, uh, most of you do. And like most of you, I myself keep a calendar. And uh, my calendar is on my iPhone, it's on my iPad, it's on my uh, laptop. Um, everywhere I need a, you know, a, a place to find my calendar, I can find my calendar because it's always with me. And the great thing about a calendar is the fact that it really allows you to keep up with what you need to do and when you're supposed to do it. It reminds me of deadlines. It reminds me of lunch appointments. It reminds me of trips that I have coming up, you know, vacation time that I have scheduled off. Uh, it helps me just keep up with life. It lets me know what's coming. And then I can also look on my calendar and I can look at what has been. Calendars are just an amazing thing. I know you've not even once thought about how special a calendar is this week because you've been busy doing other things. But I want you to think about how incredible calendars are for just a moment because they really do help us track life. They help us keep up with birthdays. If you're like me, I'm terrible with birthdays. So it helps me keep up with my kids' birthdays, my parents' special days, and, and it lets me know when those special days are approaching because calendars are just this thing that really helps us live life really on a higher plane. It helps us be better at some things otherwise we wouldn't be. But also when you think about calendars, Calendars are a great tool that allows us to measure how long it's been since something happened. I mean, how would we know how long it's been since something happened unless we had a calendar? And it also helps us look forward to the future to something that is planned and lets us know how long it's going to be until that actually takes place. But one of the things that calendars get overlooked for is the fact that really, it really does help us manage our days, our hours, our months, our weeks, really our entire lives. Because when you think about it in a big way and you think about it in a less you know, concrete way, in a more abstract way, calendars really are our lives. And whatever you fill your calendar with, ultimately one day will be what you filled your life with. And whatever was on your calendar day in and day out and the things that you chose to do and the things that you had to do and the extracurriculars that no one made you do and you just chose to do it and all the trips and all the fun and all the things that go in on the calendar, one day that will have been your life. And so calendars are a really, really profound thing when you look at them because they are recording our days, they're recording our weeks, they're recording our months, they're recording our years, and one day it will be a record of our lives. But one of the most practical things about calendars is this right here. And this ought to be encouraging for you, this ought to be encouraging for all of us. Calendars remind us that life is ultimately seasonal. Now it may record our lives and keep track of our lives, but ultimately, Calendars remind us that our lives are ultimately seasonal. Yes, there are four seasons of the year, spring and summer and fall and winter. And all of us will go through those seasons this year, Lord willing. And all of us will go through those seasons next year, Lord willing. But inside of those four seasons of the year, all of us have different seasons to our lives. Some of you are in middle school. Some of you are in high school. Some of you are getting ready to go to college this year. Some of you have been in college for a few years. Uh, some of you are single. Some of you are married. Some of you have children at home. Some of you have had children who moved out of the house. Some of you are at the height of your career. Some of you are at the end of your career. Some of you are retired, empty nesters. You love life. Life has never been better for you. You can do what you want to do, when you want to do it. It's just awesome. And so all of us have different seasons of our lives because, because life is seasonal. And here's what the calendars, calendar does. The calendar reminds us ultimately that the season that we're in won't last forever. Now that can be good news. That can be a bit of bad news. But that's what we know about looking at a calendar, that the season that we're currently in is a season that will not last forever. 
Calendars record the end of a season and the beginning of a season. That's true in the four seasons, but that's also true for you personally. The different seasons of your life, and you go back, and whether it's an abstract can, you know, calendar because you don't keep things down, you just know what you're gonna do day in and day out. It's habit for you, it's routine for you. But when you look back over the calendar of your life, you can see where seasons ended and where new seasons started. And that's one of the great things about life is the fact that it's seasonal and that the season that we're currently in is not the season that we will be in forever. And also, now I know, we've talked more about a calendar in about three minutes than what you have in the last 30 years of your life, but I want you just to stay with me for just a moment because these calendars, they're a bigger deal than what you thought of. And every time you pull out your phone from now on and look at your calendar, you're welcome, right? You're welcome. You're, you're gonna look at it in a whole different way. It's, it's gonna be awesome. But your calendar reminds you that your life and my life is ultimately a reflection of the season that we're in. Your calendar looks different in summer than it does fall. And it looks different in the fall than it does winter. And winter looks different than the spring will. Your life and my life is ultimately a reflection of the season that we are currently in. Richard Blackaby, he wrote this incredible book on seasons. I would recommend it if you're a reader and you love to read. But Richard Blackaby, he said this right here. He says that every aspect of our lives is governed by the ebb and flow of seasons. Now, it's clear that all of us have a seasonal aspect of our lives. And that's true for us, you know, seasonally with the seasons of the year, but it's also true for us personally. And he observes that every aspect of your life and my life is governed by the ebb and flow of seasons. That is, that your life is a reflection right now of the season of life that you are in. That's true of your schedule. That's true of your activities. That's even true on a deeper level. The season that you're in is reflected in your thoughts, your feelings, and even your behavior. You think differently at different times of the season. I found a few years ago something that was true of my life that I never knew was true of my life. Every October, I hit a wall. Every October, I hit a wall. I went back and I, I read my journals and I paid attention to the books that I read during that time of the year. And I started paying attention to some of the things that I, I was talking about in sermons and some of the things that I would say and conversations that I was having with people and things that I were asking people to pray about. And I realized something, that every October, I hit an emotional wall. I get discouraged, I get frustrated, I get a bit irritated, don't have any idea why, but now I'm aware of it. Because inside the season that we're in, it affects the way we think, it affects the way we feel, and ultimately it affects the way we behave because our lives are a reflection of the season that we are in. The season that we're in governs our lives more than we would like to admit. This is true personally, and this is certainly true spiritually. Life is seasonal and faith is seasonal. And you already know this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know that faith is seasonal. There have been seasons of your faith already where you loved God and seasons of your faith where you didn't love God as much. There were seasons of your faith where you were hot with devotion, and then there were seasons of your faith when you were cold in your devotion. There were seasons when you were committed, and there were seasons when you were not committed. There were seasons when you were generous, and then there were seasons when you weren't generous. There were seasons when you overcame temptation, and there were seasons when temptation overcame you. Because every single one of us who've been in faith for very long at all, we have realized that faith 
is seasonal. There's an ebb and flow. There's an up and down. It's a pendulum which swings in and at times it swings out. And this is the brilliance of the scripture. This is the brilliance of God, the creator, knowing his creation. Because God knows that we are seasonal. God was the architect of the cosmos and of the universe and he built in systems and he built in seasons to the very framework of the universe. And not only that, but he wired you and he wired me to operate within seasons. So we're all a part of this system that God has created that within that system, there are seasons. He knew that was true in our lives personally, emotionally, but he also knew that that was true in our lives spiritually. And because of this, God did the most brilliant thing. He gave a gift to his people in the Old Testament. And you know what he gave them? A calendar. He gave to them a calendar. And he says, at certain times of the year, I want you to do certain things. So he prescribed to them on their calendar that there were particular days of worship, particular days of prayer, particular days of feasting, and even particular days of fasting. Because God didn't want the people to have to take initiative. He wanted to build in institutionally. God wanted to build into the framework, the rhythm of their day in and day out lives. He wanted to build into the rhythm of their lives a system whereby on occasion at certain seasons of their life, they could recalibrate their faith and refocus their hearts back on God. So God gave to his people a calendar. And those people lived their lives and their faith around that calendar. That at certain times of the year, they knew they were going to do certain things. Certain times of the year, they celebrated. And certain times of the year, they mourned. Certain, you know, certain situations, they feasted. And then certain situations, they fasted. And God gave them the calendar so that in the ebb and flow of life, the seasons within the seasons within the seasons, that people would take intentional steps to recalibrate their faith, and refocus their hearts on God because here's what God knows about me and here's what God knows about you. Our hearts are prone to wonder. We don't like that about us. I don't like that about me. But my heart, I'm not even going to speak for you, even though I know it's true for you. I'm not, forget me. I, I'm just going to speak for me. My heart is prone to wonder. And here's what God knew. And here's what God knows about us today, that every season of life brings with it potential distractions to our faith. Every season of life that we face, every season of life that we find ourselves in the middle of, it brings with it potential distractions to our faith. There's the potential to become distracted with something that's not the most important thing. There's the potential to take our attention away from God, to take our attention away from the things that God has said, and to place our attention on something less important, something less valuable. That in every season, there is a potential list of distractions that can compromise our faith and can cause us to wonder. Now, what causes you to be distracted in middle school and high school is not always what causes you to become distracted in college. And when you're single or when you're married, it's different than when you were not single or not married. When you're empty nesters, what's distracting you now is different than what distracted you than when your children was at home. Every season of life will always bring with it potential distractions as it relates to your faith. And this is why this is a big deal, and this is why I'm going to talk about this today, is because a distraction, if not corrected, can result in destruction. Now, we're told this all the time when it comes to texting and driving. 
that we can become so distracted by texting or distracted just for a second by texting or by messing with the radio or doing something inside the car other than focusing on driving down the road, that we can become so distracted that it ultimately results in something destructive. And this is why this is important. This is why God gave them a calendar. This is why God said, I want you to build in to seasons in your life where you can recalibrate and refocus so that ultimately you can experience on some level a revival of your faith. Now, when I grew up in church, they had revival spring and summer, you know, not spring and summer, spring and fall. That was one of the two times a year they had had revival and they would build it into the schedule but but in time people just showed up and they forgot why they did that to begin with they forgot that yeah we're having this time we're, we're taking this focus because our hearts are prone to wonder and we're trying to take a cue from God and build things into our system and build things into our schedule so we're going to have a revival in the spring we're going to have a revival in the fall so that everybody can come together and recalibrate and refocus the problem is we don't realize often that we have become distracted. We can become distracted for a moment. And then sometimes we can become distracted for a season. And an uncorrected distraction can result in destruction. It can cause you to head in a direction that you don't want to go. And it can cause you and me to make decisions that ultimately undermine our future. Because whenever our faith becomes distracted, the quality of our faith is ultimately impacted. And what's distractive tends to be, in the area of our faith, very destructive. And that's the challenge for all of us. And that's what we're gonna talk about today, is the fact of keeping our faith focused where our faith is supposed to be focused. The problem is we get distracted. And then what happens is we focus on the thing that we got distracted with. And in time, the thing that we got distracted with that we began to focus on, we give our hearts to it. And that's how it works. And that's why God is so concerned with distractions. That's the reason you read through the Old Testament over and over again. And God is telling his people, don't swerve to the left. Don't swerve to the right. Keep your eyes on the things you're supposed to keep your eyes on. Because when you get distracted from the most important thing, when you get distracted from God in your life, when you get distracted from your faith, you will begin to focus on the thing that distracted you. And in time, unintentionally, you will begin to give your heart to the very thing that distracted you, that should have never distracted you in the first place. So God has always put in the forefront that we are to be a focused people, focused on God, focused on what God has said, focused on trying to find his will for our lives, focused on the most important thing so that we would not be distracted by something less important, something that in the end will undermine our future. And so as we read through the Old Testament, even when you read through the New Testament, we find that this is true, that an unfocused faith is a drifting faith, but a focused faith is a growing faith. Now, if I ask you, how many of you all want a drifting faith? <laughs> Nobody would raise their hand. If I said, how many of us want a growing faith? Every single one of us would raise our hands. But here's the, here's the problem. Here's the danger. And you know this. I've experienced this. You've experienced this. We seldom ever realize in the moment that we're being distracted. And the distraction is so subtle. And the distraction happens so incrementally that all of a sudden we're focused on the thing that we didn't even know we had gotten distracted by. And without even meaning to, without even wanting to, all of a sudden we have given our hearts to the thing that distracted us, that we got focused on. 
that took us away from the thing that was most important, the thing that really truthfully that we wanted to stay focused on. We just got distracted and we didn't even realize it. We started to drift and we didn't even know it. So this is why every August as a church, we take 21 days and we invite every single one of you to push the pause button for 21 days to stop doing something that you always do. And for some of you, that will be food. For some of you, that may mean something else. But for 21 days, that you would pause what is normal and routine in your life so that when you find yourself missing what is normal and routine in your life because you press pause, all of a sudden you will remember why you're not doing what you normally do. And in that moment, your awareness and your consciousness of God is elevated. And you can seek God and focus on God, recalibrate your faith, refocus on God in a way that normally we don't do. But by putting into the calendar 21 days that says we're going to seek God, we're going to pursue God because we believe as a church God has something big in store for us. But even on a personal level for us as individuals and for our families, we believe that God has something incredible in store for us and we don't want to miss it because we got distracted by something else. And so that's why we do this every single August. And so again, I just want to echo what you've already been asked to do. I want to invite you to participate to take the next 21 days and take your cues from what God knows about us, that life is seasonal. And perhaps without you even knowing it, you have become distracted in your faith. And you have begun to focus on other things other than what you should be focused on. And even for maybe a few of us, we have started to give our hearts to the thing that our heart should not be given to. So I wanna invite you to be a part of this. This is why we put it on the calendar because this is a really big deal. This helps us stay focused. This helps us get refocused. And so I wanna share with you to underscore why we're doing this for the next 21 days and to talk to you about the importance of not becoming distracted. I wanna share with you uh, a few scriptures out of one of my favorite books in the New Testament. It's actually a letter, but we call it a book. And it's an absolutely genius, uh, it's ingenious a, a, a letter that was written because the writer, we don't even know who the writer was. Could have been a man, could have been a woman. Some say Paul, some say Barnabas, uh, some say perhaps even Titus. We don't know, but the book of Hebrews, it's what we call it, the book of Hebrews. And it's a letter that a pastor, a friend, uh, he wrote to a group of Jewish Jesus followers. And in the beginning, every Jewish follower was Jewish, but we're Gentiles and we talked a little bit about why that changed last week. But here's the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews has this, this heart of a pastor, this heart of a friend, and he writes a letter to some Jewish Jesus followers because he fears that they have become distracted. And he fears that some of them have gotten focused on the wrong thing, and some of them have even given their hearts to the wrong thing. And so he's going to write to them about how important it is to stay focused on the things that you're supposed to be focused on and not to get distracted because being distracted will cause you ultimately to drift. And the reason that the whole book of Hebrews was written to begin with was because that someone, whoever wrote it, knew that an unfocused faith, whether it's yours or mine, an unfocused faith sooner or later becomes unbelieving faith. A faith that once loved God will be a faith that loves God less. A faith that once believed God will be a faith that believes in something else. And this is what the writer of Hebrews knew, and he's so passionate about it. He's so interested in making his point because he sees a group of people that are distracted and they don't even know it. He sees a group of people that are focused on the wrong thing and they don't even realize they're focused on the wrong thing anymore. And he sees some folks who have given their heart over to the wrong thing. 
They've taken their heart away from God and given their heart to something else. And so this is why he writes this letter. And the big message, like if you don't get anything else of what the book of Hebrews is about, maybe you even want to write it in your Bible above where it says the letter written to the Hebrews. Here's the point of it all. He says to them, whatever or whoever has distracted you, Jesus is better. that's, That's the whole point of the book. Whatever or whoever has distracted you, Jesus is better. And so there were some people that he was writing to that had gotten distracted by religion. They got so caught up in religion and religious exercise and attendance and trying to check boxes that they had gotten distracted by religion itself. There were some that he was writing to that had just gotten distracted by temptation, by sin. So there is so many applications to the people that he's writing to, and he talks about so many of these things throughout the letter. But in the end, his point is that whatever or whoever has distracted you, Jesus is better. And so this is where we pick it up in chapter two. This is what he says to them. He says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. And he's talking about the truth. He's talking about the word of God. He says, we've got to pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And this is why this is so important because there is an inclination in me and there is an inclination in all of us that when left to ourselves, we will drift away. We will drift away from the God that loves us and we will drift away from the God that once upon a time we loved and was passionate about. He says, if we're not careful to pay attention to the truth, the things that God has said, and ultimately to God himself, what will happen is we become distracted, we get focused on the distraction, and we give our heart to the thing that distracted us that should have never distracted us. He says, so you got to pay close attention. you got to take this seriously because you may be distracted right now and you don't even know it. You may be focused on the wrong thing and you don't even realize it. You may have given your heart to the wrong thing and you don't even see that you've given your heart to the wrong thing. He says, you'll drift if you're not careful. And you know what drifting is? Drifting is passive. It's not active. Drifting is when you take your feet out of the water and your hands out of the water and you just let the current take you. And you know when people drift, it's when they're no longer in control. It's when the current of whatever you're in the middle of takes over. And when you get in the current of whatever it is that you're in the middle of, that current begins to cause you to drift. You've lost control and you don't even know you've lost control. You've started to drift and you don't even realize that you've started to drift. And he says, this is why you've got to pay close attention because this drifting thing, is so subtle because as you drift, you're losing ground. As you drift, you're doing what the, you know, the old timers would call it, you, you, you backslide. You know what it means to backslide? It means that if there has ever been a time in your life when you were closer to God than what you are right now, then you have backslid. You have lost ground. You have drifted. If there's ever been a time in your life when you love God more than you love God right now, you have drifted. If there's ever been a time in your life when you were more obedient to God than what you are right now, you have drifted. If there's ever been a time in your life when you had a desire to be more generous than what you do right now, you have drifted. When there was a season of your life when you were more concerned about the will of God and surrendering to the will of God than what you are right now, then you have drifted. If there was a season of your life when you were more sensitive to sin in your own life than what you are right now, he says, you have drifted. You have slidden 
backward. You're not as close as what you once were. You're not as excited as what you once were. You're not as committed as what you once were. You're not as passionate as what you once were. Distraction has pulled you away. You've gotten the wrong focus. You've given your heart over to something else and you, without even knowing it, perhaps are drifting further and further and further away. And here's what we know. We rarely drift in a healthy direction. Rarely do we drift in a healthy direction. When we take our hands out of the water, we take our feet out of the water, we disengage, we decommit, we try to blend in, we try to keep our distance. We rarely drift in a healthy direction when we just give ourselves to the current of whatever it is that we are in the middle of, we rarely drift in a good direction. So he says, be careful and pay close attention so that you don't begin to drift. And then he goes on and he says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that again, he says the same language, that turns away from the living God because he knows that our hearts are prone to wonder. He knows that we are prone to drift and even to turn away. And he reminds all of us that at the heart of every sin, it doesn't matter what the sin is, it doesn't matter what name you give the sin, at the heart of every sin is unbelief. That's where every sin comes from ultimately, is from unbelief. Because when you disbelieve God, it's only a matter of time before you disobey God. When you disbelieve God, it is only a matter of time before you disobey God. And every time we choose sin over God, every time we step in the direction of sin instead of stepping in the direction of God, it is because on some level, we don't believe God. We don't believe that his way is better. We don't believe that his plan is better than our plan. We don't believe that he has our best interest at heart. We don't understand, so therefore we just reject and we go our own way. We go the way of sin because on some level we just disbelieve God. We disbelieve what God said. We disbelieve that he said he could take bad and make it good. We take the fact that he said it may be uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean that it's not the right thing to do. It may not be what you want to do, but it's still the right thing to do. And we just begin to disbelieve God. At the heart of every sin is disbelief. And this has been the, the case since the Garden of Eden. And God told Adam and Eve, says, you can have the whole world, but you can't have this tree. And they disbelieved God. They disbelieved that what God said would happen, would happen. They disbelieved that God said there would be consequences for your choice if you decide to do this. They thought they could get away with it. They thought that it wouldn't be a big deal. They even begin to question whether God said what he said and meant what he meant. <laughs> because at the heart of every one of our sins is unbelief. And when you disbelieve God, it's only a matter of time before we disobey God. And so he says, this is important. Don't give in, don't get distracted or you'll end up turning away in unbelief. So he goes on, he says, but encourage one another daily because you're gonna need it. As long as it's called today, so that none of you, none of you may be hardened by sins, talk to me, deceitfulness. Did you know that sin is deceitful? Sin is deceitful. Sin is a trickster. Sin is a con artist. Sin is a liar and a good one. He says, I don't want you to get distracted and get focused on the wrong thing. 
so that ultimately you begin to drift and ultimately you turn away and ultimately you give in to the deceitfulness of sin. I don't want to see that happen to you. So he's talking to them as a pastor would talk to his people or as a friend would talk to his friends. He says, don't let this happen to you. Encourage each other. Be there. Cheer each other on because sin is deceitful and sin will trick you and sin will lure you away and sin will seduce you and sin will attract you and then sin, once it attracts you, it will attack you. It will destroy you. And sin will leave death in its path. You see, not only is sin deceitful, part of the, part of the struggle with Scripture is believing what the Scripture says about us. Not even necessarily what the Bible says about sin, but here's what Jeremiah the prophet said. He said that our hearts, now I don't like this, and I know you don't like this either, that our hearts are desperately wicked, and who can know it? That our, our hearts, our own, you know, our own system, our own way of thinking, our own way of feeling is desperately wicked above all things, and he says, who can know it? That you don't even need sin to, de- to deceive you. That you can deceive yourself. You can talk yourself into doing the thing that you know you're not supposed to do. And you can deceive yourself in a way that you feel pretty good about it. Even though you know in your heart of hearts, it is not the thing that you're supposed to do. And then Jeremiah, the same prophet, he looks at God's people and this is what he says. He says, you know what? You're really bad at being good. But you're really good at being bad. And I want to say, I resemble that remark. You ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you're good at being bad, but really bad at being good? In other words, do you ever feel like to do the things that you know you're supposed to do, it's always a struggle? It's always like you're swimming upstream? It's always like you're walking uphill? Because there's a natural tendency inside of all of us to drift to the wrong thing, to drift into the deceitfulness of sin. And this is why we should pay attention to this, This is why we should have seasons of our life where we recalibrate and refocus and we ask hard questions of ourselves. Have we gotten distracted? Have we started to focus on things that we shouldn't be focused on? And have we even given our heart to things that God would never want us to give our heart to? Because once we start drifting, we fall for the deceitfulness of sin. Sin says, you do this, it'll make you happy. You think that what you need is that, and sin says it will absolutely meet the need of your life. It's going to make you so happy. And those of us who've lived long enough know that when we heard sin whisper, you do that, it'll make you happy, and then we fell for it. But on the other side of that decision was nothing but misery. It's what the writer of Proverbs says, that sometimes sin, when you put it in your mouth, it's like honey, and it's so sweet. But you give it some time, and it turns to gravel. That sin promises you things that it cannot deliver. It promises you happiness, it leaves you with misery. It promises you fulfillment, but it leaves you feeling more empty than ever before. Sin promises you that it's going to be good for you. When it's actually undermining your future, it is bad for you. It is unhealthy for you. It's not good for you. It's not good for your family. It's not good for your friends. It's not good for anybody. But sin, it's so deceitful. And if we're distracted... We fall for it. And what's distractive so often becomes destructive because when we drift into sin, 
that's when the devastation really begins to take root. And so he says, don't do that. Don't get so distracted and focused on the wrong things. Don't let that happen to you. And so I'm sure they ask the same question we ask. Well, what's the answer? And he says, oh, that's easy. Live by faith and not by sight. Live by faith and not by sight. And if you're like me, you're like, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. That's not emotionally satisfying. Live by faith and not by sight. Oh, okay. That clears everything up. That makes everything better. Live by faith and not by sight. But then he goes on to try to unpack for us what he's trying to say and the point of the whole letter so that he can bring us to one of the most practical application points that exist in all the New Testament to help us stay where we need to stay and to help us grow our faith the way that God wants to grow our faith so that we don't drift into the places that ultimately we don't want to even drift to. So he says, I want you to walk by faith. And then he starts defining faith. He says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. He says, there's a way to live your life. One is by faith and one is by sight. If you walk by sight, you will regret it. If you walk by faith, there will be a reward for it. He said, this is how the ancients lived their life and were commended by it and commended for it. They lived their life by faith. They refused to walk by their senses, by how they felt and what they could touch and what they could see. They decided that they were going to live for a different reality, a better reality. They were going to stay focused on the right thing even on the thing that they could not see, their heavenly father. And they were gonna walk by faith. So they were gonna make decisions, not on what they wanted to do, and not on what looked attractive, and even not what even seemed easy to do, but they were gonna walk by a different set of values, make a different set of decisions than anybody else. They were gonna walk by faith. Sin loves for us to walk by sight. Sin loves for us to live our life based on how it feels and how it smells how it tastes, and so on and so forth. Sin loves for us to live life by our senses. And living life by your senses, it leads to destruction. I've been there. Many of you have been there. You know that's true. You've lived that. That's part of your story. When you walk by what you could see and by what you could hear and by what you could feel, oh my goodness. Those are some of the worst decisions of your life. When you walk by sight, you, you go for immediate gratification. When you walk by faith, you've got ultimate gratification in mind. Two different ways to live your life. And then he says this, he says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. The bad news is you can walk without faith and please you. You can even walk without faith and please other people. But you cannot walk and please God without faith. Because anyone that comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, who stay focused on him. In other words, that you believe the greatest reward, the ultimate reward is not through sin and what sin promises for a season, but ultimately what God offers for eternity, that God promises reward that far exceeds what sin could ever deliver, what seems attractive, what seems seductive, what seems easy, what even seems best. He says you give all of that up ultimately because you stay focused on the thing you're supposed to be focused on and you believe that one day there will be a reward that far exceeds the reward of what sin could ever deliver. And then he spends that whole chapter, chapter 11, talking about some of the great heroes of faith and talking about Abel and how he walked by faith and not by sight and how Noah walked by faith and not by sight and Abraham, he walked by faith and not by sight. And he goes through all of those people 
to make this point in chapter 12, and this is where we end it. He says, therefore, because of everything I've told you, because of your propensity to drift and to wonder, to get distracted, to get focused on the wrong thing, to give your heart to the wrong thing, because of all of that, because you're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight, because of all of these heroes of faith that I've told you about, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and he raises the ante, he raises the level of accountability, he says, I want you to know that you're just not living in an autonomous, an autonomous lifestyle. You are being watched. And not only are you being watched by God, but you're being watched by heaven. And he does something so ingenious. He knows what we know to be true about ourselves already, that we all do better when someone else is watching. We all do better when we know someone else is watching. Right? You ever been half telling something? You know, just half working on something, and all of a sudden, you know, somebody important or semi-important walks by, and all of a sudden, like, you find your second breath. You go, like, all in. You're more tuned to details, and just everything gets better because now you know someone is watching. He says, I want you to know there's people watching. All of heaven's watching. Old Testament saints that got this right, New Testament saints that got this right, have already gone to heaven to be with Jesus. He said, they're watching, and they're cheering you on. So know that you're not alone. Know that you're not in this by yourself. When it's hard to make these decisions, know that you're getting cheered on. There have been people who've been where you've been before, and they made the hard choice. They made the right choice, and they're cheering you on. He says, so get this in your mind, that all of heaven is cheering you on so that you don't get distracted. He says, therefore, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, here's what we ought to do. Let us throw off everything that hinders us. He says, we're running a race. The Christian life faith is like running a race. And he says, as you run this race, you need to throw off every weight that hinders you from running the best race that you can run. Not sin, a weight. Just something that doesn't even have to be a sin. But this is just something that keeps you from running the race that God has called you to run the best that you can. In other words, he wants us to wrestle with this question. What is preventing you? from being the best version of you? What is preventing you from being the best version of you? What is it? Have you thought about it lately? It doesn't even have to be a sin. What is the weight that's keeping you from being the best version of you? For some of us, it may be ambition. Ambition's a great thing, but it can become a bad thing when it overtakes our life. And for some of us, we may need to lay aside the weight of ambition or part of the weight of ambition. For, for some folks, it's just being hypersensitive. It's not necessarily a sin to be sensitive, but boy, that hypersensitivity, it's holding you back. And it distracts other people. It's a hindrance, and you just need to, you just need to lay that aside instead of getting offended every time somebody says something to you. Or getting offended every time someone doesn't say something to you. Or when somebody doesn't show up and someone doesn't do what you thought they ought to do. Don't be so hypersensitive. Lay aside that weight. It's keeping you from being the best version of you. For some of you, it's your temper. You just need to lay it aside because it's keeping you from running the best race that you can run. For some of you, you're, just fr you're fearful. You're fearful of everything. It's just you find reasons to be afraid, and it's a weight. Fear can be a healthy thing, but it can be a very unhealthy thing, and you need to lay it aside. For some of you, the weight is your past, and you can't let it go. And you carry a chip on your shoulder because of what you used to do or you, how you used to do it. And every time you walk into a room, you think everybody's looking at you because of your past. You need to let it go. For some of you, you drink too much. 
You know that you do. You've thought so before. Somebody told you that you did. And now it's become a weight. It's become a way that you cope with it. It becomes your escape. You try to go get numb so you don't have to think about it. And so now it's become a weight and you need to lay it aside because you can't run the best race that you could run if you would just lay it aside. What is the weight that you need to put aside? Is it a relationship? Is it a set of friends that you know every time you get around them, they suck you into their world, they make you less better? You get sucked into the pettiness, you get sucked into the drama, you get sucked into that world, that way of thinking, that way of talking, that way of behaving, and all of a sudden when you're there, you find yourself acting like and being like and cowering too. And you know that you're not the best version of you because of a certain relationship in your life. You might need to lay it aside. What is it? Then he goes on and he says, we got this great cloud of witnesses, lay off every weight that hinders. And then he goes and says, or the sin that so easily entangles. In other words, wrestle with this one too. (laughs) What sin have you been holding on to that's now holding you back? What sin do you need to turn from? What sin do you need to walk away from? What sin do you need to end today? What is it? What sin have you rationalized and justified and defended and protected? What sin is it that makes you feel good about you, that makes you feel excited about life, that makes you feel like you're cheating the system, makes you feel like you're getting away with it, makes you feel like you're not hurting anybody, but you know in your heart of hearts that you ought to turn from it? What is that sin? What sin have you so suppressed your conscience about that you don't even feel guilty about it anymore? That in years past and months past and weeks past, you would hear your conscience whisper to you, don't do it, don't do it. You know that's not good. You know that's not right. This is harmful. This is deadly. This could undermine you. This could cost you. But you suppress it so long you don't even feel bad for it anymore. What is that sin that you're holding on to that now It's holding you back. Is it unforgiveness? Is it gossip? Is it pornography? Is it an attitude? Is it worry? Is it dishonesty? What is it? And then he says, let us get rid of all of that and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. And then he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, focusing in on the right thing, so that we don't get distracted, so that we don't focus on the wrong thing, so that we don't give our hearts. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. And then he takes it up a notch. He says, for the joy that was set before him, that Jesus, in the midst of an opportunity to get distracted from what was most important, he decided that he was gonna focus in on what was most important, even in the season of the cross, even in the circumstance which was the most painful, shameful time of his life. He decided that for the joy that was set before him, that in the midst of all the pain and all the shame, he was gonna remain focused on the thing that he ought to stay focused on, and it says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And the cross for us is furniture, it's jewelry, It's decorative, but then he brings it front and center. He says, and he scorned its shame. Most of us don't have 
the right picture of the cross when we think about the cross. When we think about the cross, we think of looking up at Jesus on the cross. There was no looking up at Jesus on the cross. When the Romans crucified people, they put them at eye level. That when Jesus hung on the cross, he hung there naked, exposed. There was no place for him to hide shamefully exposed in front of men and women and children and even his own mother at eye level. And there was nowhere he could go. There was nowhere else that he could look. There in the shame of the cross, eye to eye, he hung in its shame. And he says, when you live your Christian life, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. And I want you to think about these things more than you think about these things. I know that you know the storyline. I know that you know the music, but I don't want you to ever live your life and get far away from fixing your eyes on the cross, fixing your eyes on what Jesus did. He endured it for you. He scorned its shame because of you, because he loved you. I want you to think about that. I want you to wrestle with that. I want you to think about it in the morning. I want you to think about it at noontime. I want you to think about it in the evening. I just don't want you to think about it a couple times a year. I want you to live your life fixed on Jesus. Because when you get focused on that, oh my goodness, something begins to happen. And then this brings us to the application. This has been a verse that I can't get away from in recent weeks. And every time I'm faced with something, every time I'm tempted with something, every time that I'm in the midst of something where I'm tempted to go the wrong way or I want to say the wrong thing or think the wrong thing or behave the wrong way, this verse just keeps coming back to me, coming back to me, coming back to me, coming back to me. And he says, this is the answer. This is how you keep from drifting. This is how you keep from getting distracted and ultimately giving your heart to the wrong thing. He says, I want you to consider him. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus and I want you to consider him. I want you to imagine him. I want you to give it serious thought. I want you to think about it on a deeper level. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I want you to think about Jesus more than you think about Jesus. I want you to think about what Jesus did for you more than what you think about when you think about what Jesus did for you. I don't want you just to think about a cross and I just don't want you to think about a Jesus who hung there, but I want you to really think about it. I want you to consider it. I want you to wrestle it to the ground. I want you to imagine it in the most descript details provided on the information that we have. I want you in your Christian walk, I want you to think about how they beat him I want you to think about how they flogged him. I want you to think about how they ripped his skin apart, perhaps down to the spine, perhaps down to the bone as they flogged him with a Roman scourge. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about how they did that in front of the crowds that jeered and mocked him. I want you to think about that, how they did it in front of those who loved him and those who hated him. I want you to think about what they did to him. And I don't want you to get away from it. And I don't want you to ever get over it. And I don't want you to ever get numb to it. And I don't want you to ever take it for granted. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. And I want you to consider him who endured hostility from sinners. 
And I want you to think about how they beat him and punched him. I want you to think about how they spit upon his face. And I want you to think about how they placed a crown of thorns on his head. I want you to think about what that must have felt like. I want you to think what that must have been like. I want you to consider him. I want you to think about how they put the cross on his shoulders and made him carry it to Golgotha. I want you to think about what it would have been like when they laid him down and they took a five to seven inch nail and they pierced it through both of his wrists, piercing his median nerve. I want you to think about what it's like when you hit that nerve in your elbow and that jolt of pain that you feel. I want you to think about how his body had an unrelenting pain because of his severed nerves. I want you to think about how they drove a spike through his feet. I want you to think about how they took that cross and they lifted it up to drop it in a hole that had been dug to hold the cross so that when the cross was dropped it dislocated his shoulders and I want you to think about how in that moment the process of death started and for the next six hours I want you to think about how he was dying I want you to think about how he had to lift up on the nail in his foot to breathe. And I want you to hear what that must have sounded like. I want you to think about that. And I don't want you to ever get far from it. I want you to think about how his blood became more acidotic. I want you to think about how his lungs and the sack around his heart filled with water until he slowly suffocated to death. And I don't want you to ever forget it, the writer of Hebrews says. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. I want you to consider him and know that what he did, he did it for you. And why he did it is because he believes in you. And he's got your best interest at heart. And he loved you when it was most difficult to love you. He never took his focus off of you. How could we ever take our focus off of him? How could we ever allow ourselves to get distracted with the menial, the insignificant, the invaluable, the secondary, the third tier? How could we ever get that way and drift and turn? So I want you to fix your eyes. Because the more my eyes are focused on Jesus, the more my heart love Jesus. One of my favorite hymns was penned in 1707 by Isaac Watts when he said, when I survey the wondrous cross, when I think about him, when I focus my eyes on him, it does something.